1: Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial.
0: This is Serious Privacy by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal.
1: Many episodes of Serious Privacy deal with current developments, whether we are talking to a guest or doing a Week in Privacy episode. However, this week, we are both looking back and forward with a special guest. Barb Lawler is currently the president at the Information Accountability Foundation, but she has a long career in privacy as well. Among other things, Barb was the first Chief Privacy Officer at Juliet Beckert and spent many years in the same role at Intuit. She is also the winner of the 2022 IAPP Vanguard Award for North America, recognizing all of her great work. At the IAF, BARP is involved in the Foundation's contributions to the global legislative privacy debate, as well as projects dealing with the future of responsible data use and data ethics. Oh, and yeah, finally, Kay has taken some vacation. She should be floating somewhere in the Caribbean right now. So, as a friend of the podcast, Ralph O'Brien has graciously agreed to once again be a vacation cover for the next episodes. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I am not Kay Royal. My name is Ralph O'Brien. And welcome to Serious Privacy. So Ralph and Barb, thank you for uh, being on the show today to see both of you and to hear both of you. Happy to be here. Ralph, good to to have you back. (laughs) To have you back as a co-host. And I'm going to switch to you immediately because the co-host does the unexpected question.
2: (laughs) The the pleasure is all mine. Now, you see, Kay has the added advantage of uh, having a pack ready, a pack of cards of unexpected questions. So how did I do it? Well, I did what everyone does when I looked on the internet and uh, I found some (laughs) interesting existential questions. So we're not going to go too highbrow today, but... uh, but actually, the unexpected question I have here, Barb, and it's for you, what was the last great revelation you had? How's that? What was the last oh, great revelation <laughs> you
3: had? <laughs> uh, there are so many. I think the longer you've been working and, and been alive, the more you realize you don't know. Uh, the, the, so, so honestly, the, the most recent revelation that I had is probably a little bit nerdy because it's in the privacy space and it's specifically related to my home state of California. And the current California Consumer Privacy Act and the CPRA that's coming into effect in January. And I think one of the things that that companies struggle with, and, and even I've found as I've re-explained an uh, idea fairly specific to CCPA, which is this idea that you can't sell data or you shouldn't be selling data, that I as an individual, as a citizen... Can request that my personal information not be sold, and it's a specific link that you click on a website, and then there should be should be everything plugged in on the back end. A few weeks ago, I was speaking on a panel at uh, Hastings School of Law in San Francisco, and at at the time, we were trying to talk about the differences between "do not sell my personal information" and "do not share." And I reflected back on my long career in privacy, where companies wanted to say, "We don't sell personal information." we're the good guys. We don't do that. And that was certainly my experience in my other privacy roles. And what became clear, in, which just was kind of an aha, is we always used to say, we never sell personal information. We might share it, but it's third parties as service providers or third parties as business partners. And then you have a role in that in terms of choice or consent. And what's different in California is that you almost You think of sharing as the big picture and selling as the small picture and the unique special thing basically that you're not going to do. And in California, you have to almost have to think about it as the opposite, which is because of the very broad definition of personal information in California. And then this idea about selling information and that it's for any value, any consideration for any purpose. What that really means is that the selling is the big picture. And then sharing is a very specific and contextual situation, then mm-hmm. it's the small picture. So for privacy that. people, it's th- thinking about it kind of in the opposite way than what you did before, and that was my aha. Uh-huh, and so I like mm-hmm. to share it to others because I think it's it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Because as a, a part of what I do now, I also have a few spinnings that I do privacy consulting work for, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and one's a very small company in the talent matching space, and you know they are scratching their heads. They're a little bit puzzled on why do I need to put this, do not sell my personal information links, but because it includes the scope around sharing the kind of information that's gathered from your activity on websites that then can feed into advertising and, and advertising online almost, almost exclusively involves third-party partners at some level somewhere. In certain senses, that's a very specific service provider role, but long story short, what, once I could explain that what's the big issue and when, then what's the small piece, then people actually get it, which is, you want to say that, and, so. And what's yeah. really
2: interesting is without Kay here, Paul and I are both from the EU, so mm-hmm. we have a very fundamentally different starting point when it comes to data as a human rights model exactly and what the right. things... Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I find really interesting over here is actually one of the things that GDPR and, and our privacy legislation avoids is not assigning intellectual property, not assigning ownership of data mm-hmm.
0: so that it doesn't mm-hmm. get
2: bought and sold. Because as soon as you start buying and selling data, you know, the, the rich can afford not to, and the poor sell it, and you lose that sort of three fundamental human rights approach but back to the revelation back to the unexpected question <laughs> i'm going to jump in with mine and mine is very easy and you know, i had i had to cheat i had the time to repair mine was chips from curry sauce how's that <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so that yeah. sounds good Whoa. but now you are putting me on the spot a bit ralph because now i have to choose between two favorite topics Privacy on the one hand and food on the other. So I guess I'll go for the easy one, which is food. And then I guess my revelation is how much I actually really enjoy Middle Eastern food. Having spent some time in Jordan uh, a couple of weeks ago for the Red Cross, that was was absolutely amazing. The other revelation is that it is actually true. You can float in the Dead Sea. I've seen the pictures, I've read the stories, but you don't believe it until you actually do it. Oh, beautiful. Thank you, Paul. Thank, Thank you. you, Paul. <laughs> you guys are making so, me
3: hungry now with all
2: these yeah, food revelations. It. I mean, I, I've always said that the Kay and Paul should do a good sideline as a, as a cooking mm-hmm. podcast as well.
1: May, may, maybe sometime when we have no longer 24-7 privacy jobs Yeah. keep us occupied. <laughs> yes. So let's dive into, into the content. Barb, first of all, how did you end up in, in privacy and how did you become the first... CPO for for HP. I mean, that's it's quite a big role, especially if you are the very
3: and it was a very early role. So I I, I think it's important to let f- folks know because I think they're often assumptions. So I am not an attorney. I'm not a lawyer. I do often sound like one, and I think that's just the <laughs> the, the benefits or the <laughs> challenge of being in this field is that you we we can't help ourselves and we often need to. So my yeah. I, as I said, I'm a native Californian, born and raised in the Bay Area, still live here and when i finished college so my background educational background was business and a little bit of legal studies i often thought i wanted to be a lawyer and so there's a little bit of irony in where where i am Mm -hmm. now in my career but Hewlett packard was really the aspirational company to join and uh both for the career opportunities and the way that they treated people and the HP way and those kinds of things, so I did a bunch of different things, and I start there because often the steps that you take you don't realize where they're going to take you until you get there mm-hmm. yeah. and so i I did everything I worked in support, I actually worked in a call center for eight years, which I think surprises people it was pre-sales and technology oriented and everything cool. about hp was technology oriented from there so i i talked to customers i learned every single hp product in kind of the consumer pc commercial space and how they worked
1: uh, that's so great i mean you quasi- learn a lot in call centers I, I, yes. I, I, and you, your sensitivity for certain topics also mm-hmm. starts to 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 grow already i i during my studies i spent some years in in customer service inbound for Vodafone just answering questions mm. about mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. phone bills. And I realized now that at the time I wondered, why could I see all that data, but basically everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. A- and the call center was an organizational
3: sort of flashpoint in that it was the first time all the different, really fundamentally different product lines at HP came together to help really the sales side, which was instead of calling a sales office, you called this one specific dedicated phone phone number. And my specialty was mini computer systems and HP systems because I had been a systems administrator for HP 3000. So I'm really dating myself there. But back in those days, you did manual data entry, product information. And so I had a a person who worked for me who was doing data entry for me, who, as it turned out, was a non-functioning alcoholic. And the company sent her off to rehab, and I had to go in and fi- fix all of her mistakes. And so, before we called it data management and database management, I went straight into the database and did queries and and actually corrected all of the data mistakes.
2: I remember writing yeah. SQL queries for Microsoft Access mm-hmm. databases. Exactly,
3: exactly. That's exactly well, I, what it was. Oh, I,
2: I've got this problem with my HP Palm
3: Pilot. Could you help me? <laughs> <laughs> that is dating yourself. <laughs> that that was a li- almost almost the era. I was telling my son last night about when I joined the call center, all of us in this particular team had to assemble our own desktop computers before we could use them, which is, yeah, even he was, wow, well, he had somehow had not heard that story before from me. But anyway, I, I, I set all of that as context, which is when you have kind of the data piece and then a call center, which gives you the product and the customer facing piece. And then I was a technical program manager for rolling out content management solutions for the reseller channel in North America. And then we reorganized, and in HP, you could reorganize yourself out of your job and go look for something else without losing your job back in the day. And I had people who I worked for at the call center who had created the first centralized customer database, and they had moved to the corporate function, and they said, "We have this privacy job, and we'd like you to interview for. It. You wouldn't have a team to manage if you had in the past, but we think you'd be really good, given all of these other things that you've done." And so I went up and interviewed. And it was one of those things sometimes, so that was one of the first rev- revelatory moments, Ralph, to your earlier question, which was, I get this. I get Move this you. job. I, I know what needs to be done. Someone had started it, didn't know what to do, and so they were moving that person to a different role. But, you know, in It's a Small World, I think, Paul, you certainly know Scott Taylor, who's currently mm-hmm. chief privacy officer at Merck. Scott took over for me when I left HP as the chief privacy officer there. He was on the interview team for me for that very first privacy job that I took. Wow.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and looking yeah. at your CV. This is 1999, right? So, yeah.
3: yeah. I mean that was a long time ago. in
2: Europe, we had data protection laws. We were going on strong. But it, mm-hmm. by
3: progressing in California in 1999 legally, there wasn't a lot, right? There was no. not a lot. There certainly weren't privacy lawyers. The lawyers I worked with at the time were sort of early stage commerce lawyers. Or they were actually came out of human resources with more of that fundamental rights, employee rights kind of perspective. So it was very interesting at the time. When I left the job to take the privacy job that I had, the the person I worked for at the time said, isn't that the thing at the bottom of the website? What are you going to do with the rest of your day? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well the good thing is it's still the thing at the bottom of the website
3: <laughs> and now I there know. are more things at the bottom of the website yeah, yes. and there's not enough days or hours in the year but i, I um, remember someone
2: it, saying to me, so you're yeah. the person who writes the small print at the bottom of forms
3: yes yes th- there was that so hp had a, so so what hp wanted to do is hp wanted to establish a world-class privacy program and that was the mission and so part of it was figuring out what needed to be done now and what needed to be done over time. And so trustee was the predecessor to TrustArc, what was certainly mm-hmm. there. There were apparently some policy and political issues internally, which is why HP didn't go with, with, with trustee at that time and instead went with better BBB Online. But we did privacy seals. I oversaw the rollout of updated privacy policies and practices based on what BBB Online said, which was also aligned with the very first Drumwell Please safe harbor Agreement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes a predecessor to the thingy yes yes, yes. oh goodness <laughs> so you know, hp was you know, among the the first large companies to join safe harbor and that got us a lot of attention a lot of i, I think positive reputational recognition there there wasn't as much the counter you know, I spent a fair amount of time in Europe, particularly in France and Germany in that period, because HP had very strong relationships there and wanted to build out re- relationships with, particularly more on the regulator side, you know, met with the CNIA, with a couple of the different German data protection authorities, partly because HP's business at the time was already, was already extremely global, extremely international. And so even in the early days of data transfer issues, we were dealing with things like the, your printer usage data which was captured in Germany and then transferred to the, the manufacturing sites in, in Barcelona. And then also we're going to where a part of the management hub was in Singapore. And so you had issues around having the right transfer mm-hmm. agreements in place. But you had these sort of multi-step approaches. So we did a bunch of that. I had the opportunity to testify for the U.S. Congress, both the House and Senate, on proposed privacy legislation. That was in 2003, so I've jumped ahead a little bit in the timeline. But and I can remember thinking at the time, privacy legislation in the U.S. at a federal level is just around the corner. Still Sorry, standing I, on I, I that corner. <laughs> still standing on that corner. Here we are, well, all of these many years later, almost 20 years later. <laughs> God, do you feel already close Bob? Do you feel you're already closer in the U.S. to? <laughs> I would like to think so. It's incredibly fraught politically and yes, yes, I I can see it. I can see it around the corner. I think the the efforts around ADPPA were solid and uniquely American and got past kind of the issues that people have been stuck on around, you know, notice and consent regimes. I think it's interesting to focus up front as data minimization as framing I think in the US context taking what are, honestly, international ideas, OECD ideas, certainly some European influences, and trying to, but trying to Americanize that, if you will, for something that makes sense for the country, that more thoughtful work has done, frankly, than has been in a very long time, probably a decade. And what you run into, and it's a, it, it's an interesting, they're not just, you know, speed humps, but, you know, true roadblocks from a policy perspective, which is, what should take precedence? The and and the US is a longstanding debate. States versus federals. And what should states do? And what should the federal level do? And and the states, and that's what's really brought it to a screeching halt, is that California yeah, has amongst the here. largest representation in the Congress on the House side. The Californians really need to support what happens at the federal level. And I fully appreciate and support the idea that we don't want to take away from the states. But at the yeah. same time, it's probably not a popular opinion in this. with my California colleagues or my colleagues who are supporting California is, I think we need to find a way so that California is, that whatever happens at the federal level is the baseline, not the ceiling, and that. But I, I'm not fond of the idea of California holding up federal legislation. Quite honestly,
2: no, it's it, it is interesting for our international viewers. It's worth mentioning that the U.S. has this uh, concept of federal law and state law, and this concept mm-hmm. of preemption, which is yes. the idea that the federal law can sometimes overwrite or set rules for state law and sometimes vice versa. Sometimes the state mm-hmm. law can preempt federal law. And I think this is the big argument going on at the moment, isn't it? Where you've got this idea of a, an American federal law, but at the same time, when you've already got pre-existing laws in California, mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. Ohio, you know, yeah. they're unwilling to, let's just say, you know, uh, drop their standards perhaps in order of a, a of a weaker federal law that would affect everybody.
3: It's a good summary. I think that's a fair summary, and I don't know that that the federal approach is as weak as some would like to to characterize it at. But again, that's sort of the politics and the negotiating back and forth. So we will see it come back in with the new Congress in the winter and spring, and I think that will really be governed ultimately on what the makeup of the Congress looks like after the November eighth elections here.
2: Yeah, that's. And and that's really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm 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 from the UK. And so we're in a very interesting similar situation where in you know, a post-Brexit post-EU world mm-hmm. here in the UK, there are questions being raised by the government on whether we want the same GDPR-like laws as we have in the EU, right. right. Or whether we can still be essentially equivalent, but removing some of the red tape, as the government would put it. So can we can we change our laws, but still keep our adequacy agreements? Right. I think the same thing with the US with things like the executive order and, you know, how much does the US have to change its current position to be deemed adequate for want of a better word?
0: Uh, by the, by yeah, the yeah.
2: EU. and I don't know, Barbara, if you've got any strong opinions on that in terms of, you know, we've got this new executive order. The idea is that the US wants to have your know, version free of safe harbor, privacy shield, the thingy. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've got any particular strong views on, do you think, you know, EU's going to say yes? Do you think the executive order
3: is enough? Do you? Yeah. know, what, what do you feel that? question? I've been thinking a lot about that. I think we've all been waiting anxiously with great anticipation for the executive order and what it would constitute. And, you know, I will, you know, having been through the initials safe harbor work and then privacy shield one and privacy shield two, in my various roles over many years. First of all, I have to say the frustration on the part of American companies, and I would say multinationals based in the U.S. or not based in the U.S. who have had to deal with this and focus on what are frankly procedural and administrative data transfer risk assessments and re rewriting, resubmitting contracts. It becomes heavily administrative and tactical, and it. Mm-hmm. And it's, And it takes you away from, to me, the actual kind of fundamental work that as a privacy officer or data protection officer of the work that you're doing to actually build privacy out in all of its ways, because you have to spend all of this, frankly, inordinate amount of time on procedural administrative issues. They are important, but what you're often working with are sales teams and contracting teams and procurement teams to explain and re-explain what the issues are Mm -hmm. and explain that you can't redline some of these things and you can other things and you you get stuck in this kind of never-ending cycle. So, uh, And I agree. I
2: mean, but actually funny enough, I actually share your frustrations. I'm Anyone who knows me will know that I'm, you know, not a great fan of a contract or a agreement or a standard contract clause, if the lawyers redline it, everybody signs it off, but nothing changes. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it, there's actually yeah. no practical mm-hmm. protection for the individual yeah. at the end of the day, right? So, I yeah, totally and, and it's really all
3: individuals, not just, you know, individuals in the EU, I, you know, I would say. And, and so, yes, those contractual mechanisms are really important. And when you don't have any alternatives, you end up focusing on that. So, then when we look to the executive order itself and what that means is, yes, we'd like a new, privacy shield or whatever you want to call it and you know it's it's not clear yet exactly how it's going to work for companies and because Mm -hmm. the issues really are again you know looking at that there's the the sort of administrative and practice piece and what will we need to change in our organizations to meet the requirement based on the an agreement associated with the executive order excuse me we're still waiting for that and that that is going to be much more i would expect than just the contractual piece but then you've got to describe it in the contractual piece so will there be additional attestations or risk assessments required as a part of for example i think that's probably pretty likely but what i was also what i was also going to say in ad- addition to that is from the ultimate question around can and should data be transferred between the european union and the us And I know that it's called a data sharing agreement, but really the issues have been around data going to the US, or I will say in its first iterations, it was going to the US and it was going, let's say, let's use Hewlett-Packard example. It was going from Hewlett-Packard in Barcelona to Hewlett-Packard in Palo Alto headquarters. And then as things evolved over time and you had cloud-based services, it could be Hewlett-Packard in a cloud system that is in Palo Alto that's proprietary, or it could be through one of the third-party service providers. Mm -hmm. Again, that's just hypothetical. And now today, you know, then it could be anywhere in the world. Really anywhere in the world. And most companies actually specify where they want it to be. You know, Mm -hmm. I think there's an assumption that it's just everywhere and it's at all these different clouds. Not really. It's usually in a pretty specific set of locations that is directed by the company. But I think the other thing along with that is the fundamental issues are around how you look at government surveillance and when vault data requests come into these organizations and not all data requests and not all data processing is the same or equal. And an example (laughs) that we've used in fact, in our IIF work is around human resources related data that if the manager and, and the overseeing manager for comp and promotion and evaluations is in the U.S., There, you know, if we know companies that have had issues just with data transfers between Europe and the U.S. for human resources management, and we think the the balancing of those risks are different than in perhaps some other contexts that are more consumer-facing. I, I can't let this one go without saying that this this really started obviously to become an issue out of the Snowden revelations and the actions and concerns by Max Shrem's focused on Facebook, but we know that focused on kind of the the big tech as people talk about it. But and I've heard even in the last couple of weeks, the ex- executive order spoken about as if as this is this is to to fix or somehow correct what Facebook and Google and Amazon and some others are doing. Kind of maybe, but. Th- that's sort of where it started, not but not really. Yeah, this affects <laughs> course, every company that has international traded transfers between Europe and the U.S., regardless of their business. And I think it is distracting, and it takes people away from kind of the core issues around um, what ha- how multinational organizations actually work and, yeah. actually, and actually do business. And then it's the same for farmers, it's the same for retail, it's the same for consumer goods, it's the same for yeah you know, pick pick a ty- pick an industry practically mm. and it affects all of them so it it is this is not just a big tech issue by any stretch
2: and that's what i found fascinating actually i, I liked about the executive order there was sort of a, a reciprocal nature there where it kind of said actually the us will recognize countries that they think is going to be mm. okay to transfer data i mean the uk we were very fast out of the gates to say oh we're going to be one of them you know yes, yes. <laughs>
1: think of me think
2: of me think of me but
3: we're relevant me so uh, you know i, I, I like the, <laughs> and the uk political. is relevant
1: <laughs> well you can have a very long political discussion about that well, of course of course and <laughs> economically they are still relevant
2: okay. um uh, but you're really glad you mentioned the um the iaf again because we covered
1: the early part of your career
2: but, you know, first of all, you know, congratulations, by the way, on the IAPP Vanguard Award this year. I mean, I, I, that's got to mean something to you. So, I mean, perhaps now, because we've talked about the early part of your career, we've talked about current issues. I guess the next thing we could really talk about is you know, what the Information Accountability Foundation does, because, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not exactly clear exactly what the Internet Accountability Foundation does. So if you could educate me and our viewers, that would be wonderful. And what it is that exactly led up to your IAPP Vanguard Award.
3: Ah, okay. Two really Different, set, yet somehow intertwined question. So let me handle the Information Accountability Foundation piece first, the IAF for short. The IAF was founded in 2013 by Marty Abrams. He currently acts as the Chief Policy Innovation Officer. Prior to that, Marty was the, the founder of the Center for in- Information Policy Leadership, which still exists today under, it was Hunt and Williams, and they have a slightly different name now. But Kurt, yes, I believe. yes, yes, yes. I always remember the first part, and uh, all mergers and law firms happen too. But the the IAF actually started as a non profit breakout, rather than a for profit think tank. And most think tanks should be non anyway. But uh, a not for profit think tank focused on global policy issues, and particularly around this concept of accountability. And Marty's work around accountability, both at CIPL and then at the IAF, you find in really policy and legislative proposals around the on the around the world we believe it's important that data be able to serve people but in a responsible and ethical way and so we focus on multi-stakeholder discussions that develop frameworks policy guidance and policy input into again legislative and policy issues around the world around information so not just personal data but around information policy issues and some of the things we're working on right now is, you know, what's the current state of corporate research or knowledge creation? How do you take a broader view of looking at all the fundamental rights or fundamental interests that individuals have data privacy and data protection as a contact construct for that? Cuz we think we do think it's critical that organizations are able to to, you know, think and act with data and that if it's done in an accountable and responsible way. So accountable means being responsible and answerable and that you've prepared to demonstrate your accountability. That's kind of the nut of accountability. We try and be forward-looking three, five, ten years out, what's happening now, what's happening going forward, particularly as we see more and more uses of data, controversial uses of data, mean uses of data. And as the digital age continues to advance, and I will say advance to... What some people are calling Web Point Three, some people are calling Augmented Reality or Virtual Reality. We're continuing to see very rapid technology changes, and so we're we're looking at how do we evolve our thinking and our policy recommendations
1: or policy guidance.
3: Looking ahead, not not as not looking backwards, but not looking ahead,
1: and also not just looking at at what the dish, the issue of today, but really, well, by the end of the decade, mm-hmm. and what do we need to Ex- prepare exactly. for. Which I think has always meant a little bit, at least in in Marty's time, that he was always three, four, five steps ahead of the crowd, and everybody needed time to let his message sink in and then catch up with yeah. with the things that that he discussed and proposed. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make it always easy for everybody yeah. to understand what it is about. Whereas a few years down that line, you actually realize, oh. He was right, <laughs> and it, especially when it comes to accountability. I mean, I recall my initial conversations with, with Marty, but also with, with Terry McQuay from Nimity, mm-hmm. um, who was very much mm-hmm. inspired mm-hmm. by Marty's accountability approach about this this whole accountability thing. And while I was still with the Dutch DBA, thought, yeah, right, companies going to demonstrate that they comply with the law we need enforcement we need verification mm-hmm. of course it's nice to trust companies but control is better yeah that was very much my stance at the time and i've i've completely come around and i think that a lot of companies have come around to that accountability approach yeah. so i'm curious what we'll, what we'll see mm-hmm. from the iaf for the end of the decade yeah. where everybody now starts putting their heels in the sand and say oh no no, no this is not going to work mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. slowly mm-hmm. get Used to it and, yeah, and start to accept. So, you doc,
3: know, one doc. of the things that I found real quickly is accountability can can work and resonate in a way for smaller and medium companies. You know, we always think about the big companies and the big tech companies, but smaller companies actually understand the basic concepts, which is understand what you do, be able to describe what you do. Verify what you do. Be able to explain to others what you do, and ultimately to prove when you have to in a, a regulatory oversight context. Because I, I, I just think it's so important that you know, Paul. You you mentioned that the trust issues and you know enforcement is important. Enforcement is always a part of the, the equation, but enforcement is after the fact, and sometimes lo- a long time after mm-hmm. the fact. And we could even point to data transfer issues and what probably the executive order as a a great example of that. And I think there, there also needs to be incentives or something that again, smaller companies that don't have a CPO that don't have, they may have someone involved in privacy who may be a privacy attorney or a privacy program manager, something like that, something that they can, that they can get their head around, that they can explain, because then they often are in this you know, very complicated sort of diplomacy mission across an organization, trying to try and explain what is it we're doing and why are we doing it and why is it important? And it can't just be, we might get in trouble and then we don't have a way to prove it or we need to have a way to prove it. Is, mm-hmm. It gets at the, what I, what I find over and over again is most companies actually want to do the right thing. They just don't know how. And the, and the how is where the magic happens. You know, that was all, that was frankly why I felt like I was so successful both at HP and then at Intuit and beyond, which is you can say what you're going to do, but you have to figure out how, and it's different from every department and organization. You have to, you have to be that translator. And this is how we're going to do it. It's the challenges we see with California is how am I going to do this? Do not sell thing. How mm-hmm. am I going to do this global privacy communic- control signal? Because if it works on the front end, it can't just be a policy. It can't just be training. And these are fundamentals we all know. But being able to turn that into a how, whether you are a big multi- multinational or a small, you know, regional company, is is important. And I think I think we want companies to be compliant, and companies want to be compliant. And I think sometimes certain policymakers and regulators they want it. They they want compliance to be rigorous and detailed and complex and i won't mm-hmm. say hide the ball but there's it it's it's like beauty we will know it when we see it and you can do a lot of work and, and not know that you've done it right i guess what i would say or at least done it well i'm not even sure there's a right
2: yeah. I mean, I, I'm even encouraging organizations to drop that approach, that right and wrong, compliant, mm-hmm. non-compliant mm-hmm. approach, because the word compliance tend, tend to lead me to this sort of binary yes, no decision making. Yes, exactly. And actually with, with data and with, you know, especially, you know, you look at a European principle-based approach, it's all risk management, right? It's all risk mm-hmm. management. It's mm-hmm. all shades of gray. It's decision-making. It's, you know, without accountability pieces, you know, arguing your sides of a legitimate interest equation, arguing your side of mm-hmm. your risk assessment approach, you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so for me, you know, you know, the word compliance tends to lead organizations down this road where they do a one-off drum assessment and then
1: checklist and wash their hands and off they go, forgetting about it. As opposed, to, oh no! But we've implemented GDPR five years ago, so yeah. we don't have to care about that anymore because it's <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, answer.
3: yeah. It's 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 never it's never done. You know, one of the things that comes out of GDPR that although we don't see it in in the U.S. states really to speak of so far, um, I think there's one exception. Surprising, I haven't read all the different U.S. states. I've focused on California and. <laughs> Colorado and Virginia, because those are coming first, but more specifically, you
1: know,
3: you haven't asked the question yet, but when we think about looking forward and we think about the the continued rapid evolution of technology, I think a couple of things are fundamental is all companies are data companies, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. And should operate that way what's the fundamental foundational thing that all companies should be doing? And obviously, if you're a very large company, it's more complicated than a smaller company, but is this whole idea around data inventory and data mapping and knowing exactly what your core business processes are, why you do, th- why you do the process. Because if you start with the business piece, that resonates more, that looks more for the internal folks, which is, we're doing this to meet this strategic business objective. And then you look at what are, th- what's the data that's collected along the way and why, and where does it go and actually have that inventory? Yeah. Because then how do you know your privacy policies are accurate? How do you know your sh- security policies are implemented? If you don't have that foundational data map, data inventory, the reasons, the the rationale for processing, wh- whatever that is in whatever jurisdiction. And to me, that then is, and I've had people say, "Well, that's not a privacy thing; that's a security thing, or that's a data operations thing, or it's 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 a something else it's a thing." Basic business and thing. I think it's a basic business thing that serves mm-hmm. multiple business functions, and that's what I've found is that you do Absolutely. that, and it gets you to privacy, but it gets you at ideas that we're exploring at the after around what does it mean to have business resiliency and data sustainability. So that yeah. data is used responsibly and ethically and you don't but yeah, first again, first you have to know what you have. And so I think that also points you to as a company to more And engineering or design approaches to privacy, so you can call it privacy by design, but I would say it's even privacy engineering, which having a more structured approach, those things. And so I think privacy leaders, whether they're a CPO or a DPO or privacy operations manager or an analyst, understanding that fundamental data mapping piece, and then being able to translate that and really build, frankly, build your expertise to talk with your engineering teams, your product teams, your other teams. Because again, I'm going to say every company is a data company, whether they realize it or not. And so the more you can speak the language of data and technology or privacy, I think, you know, that to me, that is one of the fundamental directions of the privacy function as a whole is being able to do that.
2: I mean, talking of revelations, I mean, I remember Peter um, yes, absolutely floored me one day because Again, like Paul was saying, I was standing up and I would do the oh, why aren't we enforcing? Why aren't we taking companies down that are broken the law? Why are regulators standing up and talking about data ethics? Ethics isn't their job, they should just enforce the law that is there. And mm-hmm, you know, Beast Hustomes mm-hmm. kind of t- kind of flawed me by saying, Look, if companies proactively put in good data ethics and manage information properly, we wouldn't need to enforce. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because don't uh, you want companies to be compliant without the the threat of the enforcement, enforcement you always need for outliers and unique situations. And, but enforcement as the only mechanism just is, you know, when enforcement is the only mechanism, you know, it's, it's the hammer and everything looks like a nail to use that very old truism.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think that is true at the same time companies probably want to be compliant, yeah. but it has become so very difficult because there are so many different data protection obligations, yes. especially if you are a multinational mm-hmm. company. I mean, we have GDPR, but we do have 30 iterations of GDPRs, yes. And then the UK GDPR on top of that, and then we have similar laws mm-hmm. in other European countries. Then we have similar laws in uh, Latin America around the world, and, and, and that are inspired by GDPR, yes. and some that are but completely different mm-hmm. because they are still based on the old directive or on another, um, or another way of uh, thinking. Other of yeah, it is similar. Yeah, and all the privacy principles are the same. Mm. They're similar. That's why I like principle based. But they're not the same. Yeah.
2: But similar yeah. but different. That's what I tell people about the UK GDPR when I'm training people here mm-hmm. in the UK. I say, mm-hmm. you know, if you only know the EU GDPR, you probably know enough to be dangerous, right? It's the <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, it it's similar yeah. but different, you know. <laughs> you need to mm-hmm. So, yeah, but, but the principle based is good. You know, the OECD <laughs> principles, let's face it. 1980, right? They yes. have you know, for 42 years later, they haven't changed. What's anyone's excuse? That's the way I think
3: <laughs> Yeah, yes. Uh, and I would say they've evolved somewhat. And I know that OECD continues to do that work. And in fact, the IAF is, is involved in a couple of discussion groups, through Marty in particular. But fundamental principles are fundamental principles and don't change. But how, again, mm-hmm. what they mean in new contexts and how you apply them will change.
2: Well, Bob, I hate to do this, but we've been promising our listeners and Kay has been promising our listeners that we're going to try and keep these podcasts short. I'm sure you, Paul, and I, we could talk into the wee hours of the morning over a dram of whiskey <laughs> and never run out of topics to talk about. But I'm, but I'm afraid, you know, it's probably time that we hold uh, time on our discussion
3: for today. All right. Well, thank you. It's
1: been a real pleasure talking with you both. Indeed. In and well, thank you, cool. Barb. And indeed, thanks to our listeners for joining yet another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like to join the conversation, follow us on LinkedIn. You'll find us at Serious Privacy or join us on Twitter at, at Podcast Privacy. You'll find me on Twitter as at Europol B, K as Heart of Privacy, and Ralph at IGRODRYN.
3: And you can find me at at 10.
1: I'm following now. <laughs> yes. Very good. So we'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you very much. And until our next episode. Bye.
0: Goodbye. Bye. That was serious privacy.
1: Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost effectively.
0: And here's the kicker protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy driven compliance software.
1: Because they're Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting.
0: TRUSTARC's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts.